0: Yep, Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Yeah, verse 15 Paul was taken to Athens. He was escorted out of Berea to Athens. And Athens is a city you've heard of. It's in what country? Greece. And what do you know about Athens? (laughs) It's Greek. It's Greek. Yes. The food alone is worth the trip. Yeah. Like polar opposites of the all
1: about logic. Okay. Like
0: City and Yeah, certainly. I mean, when you think of any of the cities that are in Greece mentioned in the New Testament, they kind of all fit that category because we're talking about people who definitely aren't Jews. In fact, we can think of a lot of scriptures where Jews and Greeks are set as two different categories. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. These are two different categories. What are some things that made Jews and Greeks so different? Polytheism versus monotheism. Okay, yeah, Greeks had a lot of gods they believed in. And we're going to see some of that at the end of the lesson tonight. Um, lots and lots of little G gods. And the Jews had Yahweh, the one true God. Right. Yeah, circumcision was a big deal. In fact, um, you remember the term God-fearing Gentiles that we've run into in the book of Acts? It'll say God-fearing Gentiles every now and then. God-fearing Gentiles were people who were, were not Jewish by birth, so they weren't ethnic Jews, but they practiced Judaism. Yet the vast, vast, vast majority of them didn't fully become Jewish because of circumcision. And it's an interesting... Interesting thing, um, as a man, I get it. If I was an older guy and was converting to Judaism, I think maybe that one I would leave out, yeah. Uh, what else, Jews and Greeks? Yes, the not just the Ten Commandments, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Very, very key. And Greeks, what did they prize as far as studying and learning? Yeah, their worldly wisdom, right? Greek philosophy. They had Plato and Socrates and all these different philosophers that they cherished. Uh, How about morality? How did the Greeks live compared to the way the Jews lived? We are talking two totally different ends of the spectrum here, aren't we? Greeks... No rules for the most part, right? You just just do whatever you want to do. Uh, Jews, on the other hand, not only did they have a law, but many of them took that law and became very, very prideful with that law. And so they were legalistic all the way to a fault. And then you've got the other side that's licentious or free to a fault. Very different. So now what's going to happen when Jews and Greeks start getting saved and put in the same church? Yeah. You're going to have some fights. There are going to be some fights. And that's what happened in the New Testament. All right. Well, let's uh, read in Acts 17, starting in verse 16, as Paul is now in Greece in the city of Athens. And let's go ahead and read verses 16 to 21. Would someone read Acts 17, 16 to 21? Who's got it? Okay. Chapter 17,
1: verses 16 to 21. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reaching in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying,
0: what would this idol valor just to say?
1: Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the
0: Areopagus?
1: Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than
0: telling or hearing something new. All right. So there are a lot of terms that are brought up in there that we do well to define so that we know the key players here. So um, let's talk about the city of Athens real briefly. There in verse 16, it's introduced, that's where Paul is. And just... To give you a general overview, we already said it's known for its philosophy, Greek philosophers. Athens was the home historically to many philosophers throughout history. The 4th and 5th century BC, there were many famous Greek philosophers. And um, from that point until here in the book of Acts, they prized their philosophy. But Athens was also known for democracy. Democracy. It was a big deal in Greece to be able to um, have this type of society a democratic uh, form of government and society, which in the New Testament is pretty foreign. How many democracies do we read about in the Old Testament? <laughs> uh, none, right? Uh, read about a lot of kings, a lot of monarchies, but you don't read a lot about a, democ- a lot of uh, democracies. But Athens was one, and they were a part of the Roman Empire of this time, of course, because the Roman Empire was huge. It covered Greece. But the Roman, Romans made a deal with Athens uh, that the Athens could continue their way of life, their form of government. They could be free uh, to themselves as long as they maintained this friendly relationship with Rome. As long as they were an ally of the Roman Empire, they were kind of free to do whatever they wanted. And not many regions or cities within the Roman Empire were free to do whatever they wanted, but Athens was. So he's in a very different place, all things considered. When he was going through Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, these are very similar cultures. They're all Macedonians. Uh, They all have the same type of rule and structure and culture. When he lands in Greece, it's a different ball game. He's dealing with different people who believe different things. Uh, He was dealing with lots of Jews in those first three cities. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and in Athens he's going to be talking to some Jews. We just read that he went to a synagogue, but a lot of the conversation we're going to see that he had in Athens was with people on the street who were not Jewish at all, and his his approach with them is quite different than it was with those in the synagogue. So that's where we need to put our minds when we consider the city of Athens, and then it talks about idols. Uh, We're going to see lots and lots about idols when we talk about Athens and Corinth. Um, Andy mentioned earlier how the Greeks were polytheists. They had many different gods. And it wasn't just like they had lots of gods in a book somewhere that they could read about, and that was it. They interacted with these gods, so they thought, by making images of the gods. And then you can interact more closely with the God. And then you can build a nice building and place the little image of the God in the nice building and call it a temple. And then you can go in there and interact with the God. And that's an even more religious experience. So it wasn't a hypothetical polytheism to them. It was a very real interacting with these physical, tangible objects to have a a religion that is a little more real than just a theory for them. And Paul, of course, was raised a Jew, and he knew commandments number one and commandments number or commandments number one and two. Do you guys know the first and second of the Ten Commandments? What are they? You will other gods me. Okay. There you go. No other gods before Yahweh, and don't make yourself an image. So as Paul walks into Athens, that's his worldview. That's not their worldview. Their worldview is this is what we do for years and years and generations and generations. We build little gods. We build temples. We stick them in there. And those are our gods. Paul walks in and he's looking at this through the lens of the Old Testament, the lens of reality, the lens of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, these aren't real. This is idolatry. It's wickedness. It's evil. It's blasphemous. So his worldview and their worldview just have to collide at a very fundamental level, don't they? There's no blending of those two worldviews. And I want you to see some more of his thinking in First Corinthians. Go to First Corinthians chapter 10 with me. Keep your finger here, but turn forward two books to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And look with me starting at verse 14. First Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 14, and let's read all the way down to twenty-two. Who would read that for us? First Corinthians 10, 14 to twenty-two. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead.
1: Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men who you judge what I say. It is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all we partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel, and are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Who, or what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is sacrifice. Oh, sorry. That's okay. That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything.
0: No, but I say
1: that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons. You cannot partake of the table and of the Lord and the table of demons. Or we do not. Or we do. Or do we provoke that the lord to jealousy we are not
0: stronger than he are we. all right writing to the church in corinth and where is corinth Greece, greece. Yeah. where athens is right in fact right after paul leaves athens he goes to greece in the narrative in the book of acts so he's writing to Greeks who were used to having idols in their lives these carved images in these temples and he's telling them now that they're christians He's, he's giving them this new Christian worldview and he's saying, look, verse 20, look at verse 20 again. The things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to who? Yep. Yeah, devils, demons. It's those aren't sacrifices to God, but those are sacrifices to demons. And so Paul's worldview is he's in Athens and he's seeing all these carved images and things, is he seeing demonic activity? Devilish activity. Um because you can look at it in a variety of ways. You can look at it and say, "Okay, the images of, God, of false gods and the temples are good." That's how the Greeks viewed it. They say, "Okay, those are good. We should have those." Well, we don't view it that way. You could also view it by saying they're bad because they're nothing. Uh, it's like neutral. You know, okay, it's it's a thing made out of wood. It's a building made out of stone or whatever. Um, they're just nothing. Well, Paul goes even further. It's not just nothing. It's something. It's demons. It's demonic activity. It's not just that it's a human with a piece of wood and some stone. It's a human dealing with and interacting with and being influenced by demons themselves. And that's a strong statement, isn't it? Uh, To go as far as, as to say this is demonic. So that's Paul's interpretation of what's going on in Athens with their idolatry. Thoughts on that or questions? Good, tracking? Okay, chapter 17. Uh, Again, we want to keep defining these terms. There were a couple different philosophical groups that Paul dealt with in verse 18. What are the names of these philosophers? What types of philosophers? And? Stoic. Stoic, very good. So the Stoic philosophers were certainly pantheistic. The Stoics were pantheistic, meaning they believed that um, all is God. Okay, um, all is God. That's what pantheism is. Everything is God. Your soul and the cosmos that you live in—it's all God, and it's all connected. It's pantheism. All God. Very, very different view than what we believe, isn't it? <laughs> we we don't get that out of the Bible, um, but they're pantheistic. They emphasized, as philosophers, the importance of both rationality and self sufficiency. So here you are as one with, the, one with the universe, you are God, you are self-sufficient, you are to think rationally, to grow your brain muscle, and to be this really amazing human being through your own rational powers. That was their view of human life in this world. And I want to read to you from a Stoic poet, something that was written a long, long time ago. It says... Uh, From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank, T-H-A-N-K, we thank with brief thanksgiving, whatever gods may be, that no life lives forever, that dead men never, or sorry, that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. Okay, if you're Paul and you're in Athens and you know that they've got a bunch of philosophers out there saying, we don't know anything about whatever gods may be, that you can't live forever and that there is no resurrection, you're thinking, I've got some significant challenges as a preacher of the gospel, right? <laughs> There's not a lot of common ground for us to work with here. Uh, that, that's their philosophers. The Epicurean philosophers are just a tad different than the Stoic philosophers, Instead of being pantheistic, the Epicureans were more deistic. Who can tell me what deism is? Deism. Andy. Deism
2: is the idea that God has wound up the universe like a clock and is
0: just stepped back and laying it do its thing. Right. No, there's no interaction between God and the universe. Exactly, uh, the only difference in their case would be instead of saying capital G God, they would say gods. They would still be polytheistic in their deism. So there were a bunch of gods that got together and made the earth. One god made the earth. Another god, you know, did this. Another god did that. And now they don't interact with us. That was the view of the Epicureans. Which again, significant challenge for the preacher of the gospel. Right? We have a very different perspective on how uh, humans interact with deity. And they taught that the best thing you can do in life is to get maximum pleasure. Go out and find maximum pleasure in life. Do what makes you happy. And that's a very, very common philosophy in our world today. Uh, people get there by different means than Greek philosophy for the most part. But that idea of life's purpose is just go do whatever you want, whatever you find that satisfies your, yourself and just go do that for the rest of your life. Is that a good way to live? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and that worldview starts with man and ends with man, doesn't it? And how, how does God react to that type of Thinking. Well, he's got judgment for that, doesn't he? And we can see the philosophers of that day, their whole kind of perspective summed up in verse 21. Uh, see this, look at this little note that Luke threw in. It's in parentheses in the New American Standard. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new, <laughs> chasing novelty. Chasing after the newest thing that's going to increase your ability to live in this world in a great way and make you a better person and, you know, 13 steps to a better you. And here's how you can have more satisfaction in, in your life. And chasing, chasing, chasing all these new ideas. Uh, again, that's something that is antithetical to Christianity. We have that hymn. Talks about the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Is that how it goes? Um, the old, old story. We, our gospel doesn't change. We don't come to gather together on Sundays as the bride of Christ to hear something new, really, do we? Because <laughs> we agree with Solomon that there's nothing new under the sun. And the heart of our message hasn't changed for thousands of years that God is and that man is a sinner and that man needs to be made right with his creator and that that's possible through the cross of Christ alone. That's our message. It doesn't change. And the Greeks, specifically those in Athens, they spent their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. (laughs) So this message of a gospel that never changes, that's not particularly exciting to their fleshly ears, is it? They want things to change. They need new things. There's one commentator that says this verse, verse 21, is uh, contains the most cultural insight in the New Testament or something like that outside of what was going on in Israel. We get the most insight into the Gentile way of thinking in this one verse than any other verse in the New Testament, that their minds were just constantly feeding after some other new worldly wisdom. Um. Novel ideas. They wanted novel ideas. And then the final thing that we need to define to really understand what's going on is that word Areopagus in verse 19. Yours might say Mars Hill. That's another way of expressing uh, that word, the Areopagus, or yours might say the Council of the Areopagus. That was a place where those Greeks would get together there in Athens to hear trials, and to render judgments on matters of religion and morality. In fact, at this time, because it had been around for a few hundred years, and at this time when Paul was there, it was specifically used to hear homicide cases. I thought that was interesting. Um, That it was a place where they would come, they would hear out a case and render a judgment uh, based on what they heard in the trial. And when Paul was being brought there in this context, it was going to be repurposed. That arena was going to be repurposed. Uh, Because Paul wasn't on trial that day, but he was there rather as like a guest speaker. The Areopagus, everybody knew about it in that area. Come down to the Areopagus tonight at 7 and hear Paul talk about this new message. That's kind of what was going on. And so, uh, you know, it was a sold-out crowd. No, they didn't do tickets. Um, But they, they gathered there to hear Paul hear about this teaching. There in verse 21 again, they asked, Or verse uh, 19, rather. May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. And notice they say new teaching. Because to them it was new. Now now when Paul's teaching it and he eventually tells them, by the way, this message is never going to change. That's something they're going to have to deal with. (laughs) Um, But for the moment, he's got a new message. Let's send them over to the Areopagus. We all got to hear it. It's a new thing. And they get fired up about new things. So that's what's going on in this setting. Uh, You've got some people who are rejecting Paul. there in verse 18 calling him an idle babbler. Uh, I've got a note here that says, um, that could also be translated, one who makes his living by picking up scraps. Um, Kind of interesting. Uh, Others were saying he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. So they were just writing him off, but for others they wanted to hear. And if Paul had an opportunity like that, he saw that the way a running back sees a 10-yard gap between the offensive line and defensive line. He was going to run right through that. And so he said, you're going to let me go talk at the Areopagus? All right, let's go. And uh, he knew that, of course, he could be persecuted just like he was in the cities before. Didn't matter to him. He was ready to do it. And he was ready to do it because, look at verse 16 again. Let's go back to the first verse we read tonight. Verse 16. What was going on in Paul's heart and mind there? Yeah. Mine says, the New American Standard, he was provoked. Do you guys have any other translations out there besides provoked? Just curious. I didn't look that up. Stirred. Spirit was stirred. I like that. Greatly distressed. Excellent. Yeah, last night I was driving home. We had a meeting here at the church, and I was driving home and going through our neighborhood and it just hit me almost like it was fresh. Just looking at the houses and thinking there are people sleeping in all these houses who are going to hell. I don't think about that enough. I really don't. <laughs> Cuz when we first came out here as Missourians from the Bible Belt, It was very obvious to us, like, this is weird. All these people, none of them know Jesus. This is a weird place, and this is a big deal. And now it's been six and a half years, and it's like, well, we're used to it. But that stuff needs to hit us fresh. And it was hitting Paul fresh in some way that his spirit was provoked or stirred or distressed because he was doing what at the end of that verse? What was he doing? Yeah, he's looking around and he's seeing the idolatry. And remember to Paul, idolatry wasn't just okay, those people are interacting with idols and going to sleep and nothing's really happening. He saw idolatry as interacting with demons. Now, let's bring it home. We're looking around, we're seeing temples, we're seeing idolatry. We're seeing people interacting with false gods. Do we just think, well, they're just doing nothing? And obviously that's not good to do nothing. They're sh- they, they created to have a relationship with the living God. So doing nothing is bad. But let's take it as far as Paul takes it. It's not that they're doing nothing. They're doing something. They are interacting with demons. They're sacrificing to demons. They're engaging in demonic and devilish activity. That should provoke our spirits. That should stir us. That should cause us to be distressed inside knowing that God has put us here as ambassadors for Him. How will they hear without a preacher? That's you. (laughs) That's me. That's each one of us. And so, I, I love that verse 17 in the New American Standard starts with, so. It says in verse 16, He was provoked, He was observing the city full of idols, So, what's the natural conclusion? He was out there reasoning. He went into the synagogues and he went into the marketplace, it says in verse 17. Taking the gospel with him. How disappointing would it have been if it said, Paul was greatly provoked and distressed and his spirit was stirred and so he just stayed home. That would be lame. (laughs) We'd say, what are you doing, Paul? (laughs) And yet... We need to be challenged a bit. If our lives were being documented like Luke is documenting Paul's lives, life, not lives, if like Luke is documenting Paul's life, okay, I'm not saying you need to go out and just be like Paul exactly. You have your own ministry. You have your own gifts. But are you provoked? And are you taking the gospel? Be challenged. It's good to be challenged, okay, by the word of God. Other thoughts on that?
1: Years ago we would go to Indian reservations and these people would profess Christ, but they were still trying to live what they thought was a Christian life, and it wasn't it didn't work
2: because you can't have both worlds.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that happens here too, and
1: they'll flip flop back and
0: hmm Yes. Because how will they know without a preacher? There's enough... Um, God has placed enough evidence of Himself in the universe that it's, it's sufficient to condemn every human being that's ever been born. Um, every human being knows that God exists, Romans 1. And has suppressed that truth and replaced it with a lie. And they are, God is just to condemn them. They are worthy of judgment because of that. Because God has made himself evident to them by the things which are made. Romans 1 says that. But they do not have enough evidence in their natural state to know the gospel. That requires a preacher. That requires an ambassador for Christ to come into their lives and tell them that. So what you have in the world is a bunch of people who are born into a state where they are justly condemned, but they can't be justified until someone comes and tells them the message. They can't escape that condemnation until they hear the message of the gospel. And so that's our present ministry in this world um, is telling people, having that conversation, confronting them in their not just general vague sin, not just idolatry, but in their demonic activity. <laughs> if we could see the angels and demons all around us, what a sight that would be. Um, demonic activity. And we have the Spirit of God. So let's go out and confront it. Travis. this is one to think of a really home
2: is this demonic activity that's going on such an honor every year. They're not just involved in that. They're actively aggressive. They're going out. Deceiving those around them. Right? Yeah. They're not just sitting like Paul's company. on these guys, and they're doing their thing. They're saying, "We got to go and get more." You know, so these people. This is provoking a lot of We see two or two individuals around here yeah. actively trying to do nothing more than track them down. They
0: yeah. of yeah. And it's been said before. There are plenty of unbelievers who are willing to do for a lie what Christians will not do for the truth. And that is just sadly accurate in many cases. Um, I'm thankful that in our church we do have a a good history of evangelism. But we need to keep it up. And it doesn't have to be the full church-wide effort stuff. It starts with your own home and with your neighbors. That's where it starts. With your family and friends. That's where it starts. That's where you have the most influence anyway, is starting there. So consider that. It's tough. I'm not going to pretend like it's easy or fun or that, you know, it, it just really makes everybody feel warm and fuzzy inside. It causes hardship. But that is why you're here as an ambassador for Christ, your present ministry, just to do that. Anything else on that? It says again in verse 17 that he was reasoning with these people, reasoning with the Jews and in the marketplace, those who happened to be present. I love how it says that. Paul didn't care. He was just going to go set up shop and see who God brought along. Um, But he was reasoning with them. How do you think that reasoning went about with those two different groups of people? Knowing what we know about Paul, knowing what we know about Jews, knowing what we know about Greeks, how did what did the reasoning look like, do you think? <laughs> yeah, it looked like the Trump and Biden debate, yeah. <laughs> Heaven forbid! The debate that's going on now, I hope we get home to find out it was much more civil, that would be nice. Um, no, it didn't look like that, I think we can say. <laughs> What do you think the content of Paul's reasoning was? Yeah, if he's in a synagogue, you've got to be using the Old Testament Scriptures, right? And they're not going to let you reason from any other position. Good? Just as we do. Yep. Every
2: human being that walks the earth knows that there is God. Yeah.
0: Because it says in Romans one, I love this phrase, God has made it evident within them. I like that. You can't escape the testimony that God has given you in your conscience, right? That's intrinsic to who you are. It's not like God has presented you with something and then you can choose to look or not look. It's not that's not what he's saying. It's in them. It's their conscience. They know Well, yeah. And and that's a point I wanted to make. So, So the main difference, of course, between his reasoning with Jews and Gentiles is his use of the Old Testament. We're about to see that at the end of chapter 17 when Paul preaches at the Areopagus. Zero Old Testament references. Very, very different than the recorded sermons that we have when he's in the synagogue. Because when he's in the synagogue, it's Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. But here he doesn't do that. But something that he does in both contexts is he presupposes the God of the Bible. He pre- when he's talking to the Jews, he presupposes the God of the Old Testament. And you might think, well, yeah, because they believed in the Old Testament, so it's common ground. But when he goes to the Greeks, he loses that common ground, right? They don't believe in the Old Testament, so why would he start by talking about this God that they don't even believe in? That's because you can't preach the gospel without starting with God. <laughs> You can't can't preach the message without starting with the God who is. He doesn't need to be proven because He's there and they know it. That's what the Bible says. And if you're a Bible believer, you're not going to play into their lie where they say, I just haven't been given enough evidence yet. (laughs) My Bible says God's made it evident within you. And my Bible's correct, and you are not. You've suppressed the truth. You're you're deluded. That's what the Bible says. They're self-deceived. It's called self-deception in Scripture. So when they go about spouting things, don't believe what they say if it contradicts Scripture. You're believing deceptions instead of believing the truth of Scripture. And I want you to see this when we get into the sermon here. Look down at verse... Let's see, we'll just read starting at verse 22. It says, So Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. As he says, I'm going to proclaim something to you. Notice those first two words in verse 24, the God. Not saying, I want you to understand that When you look at the second law of thermodynamics, we have to recognize that the whole universe is winding down and that means it had to have a starting point. And starting points have to have a starter. And so do you agree that there had to be some sort of deity out there that could have started all of this, yes or no? That's the way a lot of people do apologetics. And they think if they get the unbeliever to agree that some vague concept of God exists, then that's a win. That's not a win. Do you know how many false religions believe in some God? So we don't want them to believe in some vague concept of a God. We want them to believe and submit to and bow down before the one true God. And so, Paul isn't demonstrating here that we look for common ground with the unbeliever. He's demonstrating that we preach the truth regardless of our audience. Now, there are adaptations that take place. Again, he doesn't use the Old Testament in this sermon. But did he... Preach the same things that he preached to the group before? Yes. Yes. He's still preaching the truth of the gospel. Good stuff? He says they're very religious. Just want to make a couple notes on this because we're going to go through the whole sermon next week. But um, <clears throat> he says, I observe you're very religious, verse 22. He's obviously not patting them on the back and saying, that's great, like the Mormons do to us around here when they say, oh, you guys are so good. We're so glad you're here. Um, That really bugs me. Uh, But uh, he's not saying that, like, that's so good that you're trying to be religious. That's great. He's basically saying, I tell you, I can see you're really superstitious about religion. I can tell that you think that there's something that good that's going to happen to you by worshiping these little images Um, And actually, some translations and some interpretations of this think that he's referencing superstition alone and not religion at all. Um, He's just pointing out to them, you're doing what all humans do. You're worshiping. All humans, every single human being worships something. You can see it in the toddler who worships himself and himself alone as God of the universe, right? And you can see it in the aged person who is maybe entrenched in a false religion and worships a demon, a God that is not real. And so as Paul cracks this open with them, he's saying, look, I can tell you're very superstitious. You have this, this one object, <laughs> this altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Well, that's, that's just showing your ignorance is what he says. What you're worshiping in ignorance, let me declare to you with truth. And what he does in this sermon is he begins with God as creator, verse 24, the God who made the world, and then drop down to verse 31. Look what he ends with. He ends with God who has fixed the day in which he will judge the world. He starts with God as creator and he ends with God as judge. That's the heart of Paul's message. His mission has been the same city by city, people group by people group. You need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And Um, he was committed to that fully. Okay. Thoughts or questions as we've approached the end here? Explain Uh, (coughs) explain what an Areopagus is. Is that like an amphitheater or a hill that you talked to? Yeah, so so Areopagus is just the title of the place here. And so... Um, It does seem as though it was an amphitheater style. They were known for that, you know, with the seats that go up. It's likely that that's what it looked like. So that way you could speak and everybody could hear without any amplification. Mars Hill.
2: I really like uh, this looking down over everything we've been talking about tonight, how he walked into the, uh, walked in and saw right away. Like, it stuck out in his mind. These guys are idol worshippers. And that was just, you know, and then he he took note of stuff around him. And then he saw the idol, you know, to the unknown God. And he took note about it. He's like, uh-huh, you know. So all this stuff was adding up in his mind as to what he needs to say to these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like that because too, too often, you know, I go through my day and, uh, you know, I... I'm uh, working. I'm on the worst mode. In mm-hmm. the worst mode, and I, I need to be focusing on people around me. You know what's bothering them, what they're doing, why they're doing it. You know I need to be more that way. Which I know you know he was a living uh, mission field. I guess. But yeah. Still, yeah. Um, we should do too.
0: Yeah, his his priority was evangelism, and so as he noticed that stuff, you have to think that he was thinking, how can I use this for gospel conversation. Right, Because I know for myself a lot of times, you see something like that and you think, well, that's stupid, then you move on. (laughs) Those dummies, what are they doing over there? Bad idea. See you later. (laughs) Uh, But Paul here, the example that we get from this apostle that God used is taking those things and leveraging them toward gospel conversations. And you can do that with anything in life. Think of Jesus' parables. A guy going out and throwing seeds on the ground. That's a gospel conversation, isn't it? You can take any of those things and leverage it toward the gospel, for sure. Okay. I wish we also had like a detailed account of what Barnabas and John Mark were doing. Wouldn't that be fun to read side by side where they were and their conversations and all that? But we can talk about it in heaven, I guess. (laughs) Where were you in Acts 17, Barnabas? (laughs) Right. Hmm. Anything else before we close in prayer?
2: Tyler, you want to close this?